Recorded live at Toxin Tasting Studios, it's the Clerical Errors Podcast. The podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. Let's go. Wanted to redo an opening. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Because it had started, but then it stopped going. So, I apologize. Okay. All right. Well. <laughs> Take two. Take two. Welcome to the Clerical Errors Podcast. I'm Bullhagen. And I'm Berg. Vicar is here. And uh, let's... uh. We got our drink here. Um, you don't get to hear the opening because we messed that up because we don't have Peter today. And, and, so, and so I already messed it up. <laughs> it was really amazing. We wish you were there. It was, yeah, it was great. It's not like when we had the tornado warning sirens go off. Right. Uh, this is, the our drink is Tapo Chico, which is a mineral water, and it's from Mexico. Yeah. So it is very... Bubbly and minerally, but not too bubbly. Right, right. It's got to me. It's got a. a, a so, what do you think about it, Vicar? It's subtle enough. I can actually enjoy it. I. I do. There's something about the, the the old style glass bottles too. It's pretty classy. So, yeah. It's from a place where we would like to be at the moment, because it is bitterly cold here. Yeah, yeah. When I saw what nine below zero this morning, that it was a little tough. Yeah. It gets to that part where it kind of the cold and snow start to hurt your feelings a little bit. Is it true that that Bush Light uh, takes a dollar discount when it goes under zero? Have you seen that promotion? I've seen that on Facebook. I'm sure it's just an urban legend. All right. For you know Anheuser Busch because of all the uh, Carson King things. <laughs> oh, don't you remember this happened? Remember the guy holding up the Vimo sign? Oh yeah. Right. And yeah. Uh, you know. And they were going to, uh, he's going to donate all that money to the children's hospital. And then uh, they found out he made a tweet, like when he was 16, from, you know, and quoted Tosh 2.0, and Anheuser Bush pulled out all their money. Oh, yeah. Right? So, so if you're drinking Bush or Bud Light or anything like that, you should probably rethink your life choices for a lot of different reasons. I think back to my 16 year old years. If I had Twitter when I was 16. Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean,. <laughs> Parents, service announcement from Clerical Errors. Don't let your kids get on social media. <laughs> they have no impulse control. Hmm. Yeah, sometimes it takes till you're like 45 or 46 to get it. Uh, you know, so. <laughs> so what are you preaching on? All right, so the text for this uh, Sunday, we're still recording, right? You, we are recording. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I, I don't know if I want to do that again. <laughs> so, uh our, this Sunday is Epiphany, the second Sunday after Epiphany, and what does Epiphany mean, Vicar? Epiphany means revealing. Right, and so Epiphany is the mirror image of Christmas. At Christmas, we celebrate the fact that the Word became flesh, and at Epiphany, we celebrate the fact that this man, Jesus Christ, is true God. And so John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, uh, frame the basis of our gospel lesson. And here, we see that Jesus does his first sign, or miracle, and there are seven signs that Jesus does in the Gospel of John. Um, of course, Jesus did more miracles than that, but John picks out these particular seven uh, as being really important. And, Vicar, where does Jesus do his first miracle? In uh, Well, at Cana in Galilee, at a wedding that we know uh, Mary was there, as well as Jesus' disciples. There's a lot to preach on here. Um, if I were to preach on this, I would preach about the limits of parental authority. Because Mary asks Jesus to do something, and he responds to her in what we would think of as a very rude way. He calls her woman. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so the question is, is, you know, is Jesus just being a jerk? Is he breaking the fourth commandment? And the answer is no, because Mary has exceeded her maternal parameters. She's gone beyond what she can actually command Jesus to do. Mm-hmm. In his office, Jesus is above her. And this is why he responds to her in the way that he does. And I think that's a good lesson for all parents to, to realize, right? That their, their authority is always conditioned by the authority that God has over your children. Um, it's important, like, for example, when husbands and wives get married, um, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. Um, you see that Rebecca leaves her family and joins with her husband. Mm -hmm. um, we always respect and honor our parents, um, but 
you see the creation of a new household. Yeah. Um, so I think that's and, a very I, important thing to realize. I think, I think you can then you can say that the the honor and respect that you have for your parents changes, because we do see Jesus showing that honor and respect to to Mary when he's dying on the cross and uh, he uh, gives her the household in which to live in. You know, right with John. With John, there are other times when he's doing what he's supposed to do, and he has to rebuke her. Because her love for him is greater than her love for God. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they are waiting outside to take him home because they think he's crazy. Right. You know, and so what does Jesus respond with? Well, who are my mother and my brothers? Those who hear the word of God and keep it. And that's the thing. We love our children. Right? Mm -hmm. But we can't love them more than Jesus. That's a sin. The other interesting thing here is, have you ever done a, like, how many gallons, how much wine that actually is that Jesus makes? I, I did one time. I think it was like 108 gallons or something like that. Yeah. So, and put it into bottles. If you do the regular bottle, Jesus made between 600 and 900 bottles of wine Ooh. at this wedding. That's a lot of wine. That's a lot of wine, right? And, you know, so what does this show? That Jesus gives in super abundance. He gives us more than we deserve and more that's, than that's even necessary. Yeah. Right? You know, I've actually heard this preach two ways. Well, one, I've heard it preached that uh, change the water into wine, for not for those who are drunk because he doesn't, he's not, doesn't lead people into sin. Then I heard others say, well, they probably were already drunk and he just shows his abundance. And they're like, well, which is it? <laughs> yeah, I have a really hard time, you know, saying that Jesus is going to give wine to drunk people. I mean, he gives it in abundance because... He is good. And if people misuse his gifts, that's their fault, not, yeah. not God's. So I was, when I was looking at the readings, uh, one text that is often paired with this because it's a wedding theme is uh, Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul talks about marriage. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Vicar, what kind of misunderstandings do you think people have when you, they think of this passage? First of all, where it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. This passage often is taken um, in a way that, oh, is the Apostle Paul saying here that women are less than men, and therefore men are domineering over women? Uh, some some biblical interpreters uh, take that uh, subjection as more of a domineering of men over women. If, you, if the example that Paul gives here... Um, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And what kind of uh, headship is that? One of love, of care, and concern. Anyone who gets uh, miffed by submission doesn't even doesn't really understand what that is. Um, for example, children submit to their parents, right? Mm -hmm. But who's doing all the work? The parents. The parents, right? I mean, think about that. I mean, anybody who is in a in a position of authority. Uh, in society, right? Because the estates, right? The family, the government, you know, who would ever want to be in a position of authority? Because if you do it right, it sucks. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you're the parent, yeah, sure, you can tell them to do stuff, but guess what? You're changing diapers and you're making food and you're driving them here, you're driving them there, you got to support them, da 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 da, right? Mm -hmm. That's the thing. That's what this submission is. Like, my wife loves it. That ultimately, all the you know the final decision, it, it's not on her; it's on me. It's actually right. a very freeing thing, right? Because guess what? She actually trusts me to make right decisions for the family. And because right? you love her, you're going to take. It's not a domineering. You're going to take everything. Right. It's not for my benefit because that's what the husband should do. Right. Your concern always... is for for her, even above your own self. Right. So I mean. This is why it shows that there really is anyone who has that issue um, really needs to go back and just study the life of Christ. Um, because, yeah, we are called to, and this is why I, I don't always like, Jesus does call us friends, but everybody, you know, who thinks about Jesus being their friend, you know, it's like, oh, it's my buddy. You know, we can just hang out together, have a beer. <laughs> no, of course not. Jesus is, you know, he is our friend, but it's not in the way you think, right? He's like... The world's most interesting man who gets down 
and hangs out with the most dull and poor man. That's what it means, right? Jesus actually puts himself on our level. When he calls us friends in the Gospel of John, that's what he means. We're no longer servants. There's no longer this inequality between us because mm-hmm. he's stooped down, right? But that's the thing. He's also our Lord, and we should submit to him because he knows what's best for us. That passage continues. It goes on to say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having her cleansed by the washing of the water of the water with the word. I think when we hear that passage, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, we might take it to mean um, quantified. You know, husbands, love your wives in the same amount. So when husbands love their wives, they love their wives by desiring exactly the same thing for their wives. They desire that they be righteous and holy and, and purified in the blood of Jesus. That it's not just, oh, I love you, this, as much as Jesus, you know, we can't do that. But it, but it does say, I do think it means that, that uh, the first and foremost care and concern that a husband would have for his wife is her spiritual well-being. Yep. And so, and so if that is how the Bible defines the love of marriage, I think that also then can reflect in, in the life together before marriage. What do I mean by that? Well, if you have someone you want to marry, gentlemen, and you care for them, how are you going to treat them? Are you ever want to ask them to do something that's damaging to their soul? I would hope not. With that that idea of love, the way it's go- it gets thrown around, you know, if someone's, if this person truly loves you and, and he wants to marry you, he will honor and respect you um, as a gentleman before you get married and after. And man, don't marry someone outside the faith, right? That's the other thing here, right? As you know, that your wife should want to submit to you as the church submits to Christ, right? Mm-hmm. The church is faithful, right? Mm-hmm. So don't marry someone who is outside of the faith. Don't be unequally yoked. Because if you are, all you're asking for is trouble. All you have to do is read the Old Testament to find that out. Let's uh, move on. Now, normally we would do the top 12 list, but I'm I'm really fired up. Okay. Pun intended. <laughs> because we have a new segment. And uh, the first thing we need to do is uh, to get a kind of a roaring, crackling fire going. So hopefully we don't burn the studios down, the Indeed. wonderful toxin tasting studios. So uh, there we go. Mm-hmm. Got the nice fire. All right. So, so Berg, would you like to... As the fire is, is kind of roaring along, would you like to uh, tell us what uh, your new segment is? All right, so this segment comes from the genius of Pastor Bullhagen. If you remember back to the episode, Gag Me with a Confirmation Spoon, you remember that Pastor Bullhagen dismissively said, so what are you going to do, you know, teach, teach catechism around the campfire with a guitar? Well, dear clerical errorists, that's exactly what this new segment is going to attempt to do. We're going to figuratively sit around the campfire. This bit is meant to push the envelope when it comes to Christian instruction. This is a segment where bold and original ideas about Christian instruction will be presented. Some things might get a little strange or weird. I get that. But, you know, the goal of this is to find um, ways in which you can teach your friends, your family, uh, or your congregation about the Christian faith in new ways. So... When we, as we begin, we're going to talk about what is this word, catechesis. So what is catechesis? Well, let's look at a scene from the modern movie called The Witch. The Witch came out in 2015. It's a movie set in the 1600s in New England. A Puritan family goes off by themselves and lives near the edge of a forbidding dark forest. Their crops fail, and so they have to resort to hunting and trapping. And so father and son are in the woods hunting. And then we see and hear something unexpected. The father asks the son a series of questions. The father says, Art thou then born a sinner? Son says, I. I was conceived in sin and born in iniquity. The father, And what is thy birth, sin? The son, Adam's sin imputed to me, and a corrupt nature dwelling within me. The father said, Well remembered, Caleb, very well. No movie director today could have made this up. The dialogue is actually from a Puritan catechism. 
John Cotton wrote Milk for Babes in the 1640s. It was a beginning catechism for children and young Christians. There are other scenes in the movie which come from other catechetical and devotional practices of the time. In a different scene, we see that the dad eats dirt while praying. While this seems pretty weird, he is imitating Puritan devotional practices of the period, which he probably learned from a catechism or a devotion. This is a great scene which illustrates what catechetics is. Catechetics comes from the ancient word kataketio, which means sound, uh, sound through, instruct orally, or catechize. If we break down the word further, we see that there's two parts to this word. The first word is kata, which means down, or in this case, thoroughly. The second word is ake, or ake, which means an audible sound. In short, catechesis is religious instruction, which is given orally to students or catechumens. There are a lot of words which you'll hear during this bit. There's the word catechism, which is very familiar to Lutherans and to other Reformation denominations. Catechism is oral instruction. Unfortunately, today it means a book. A catechist is the one giving the oral instruction. A catechist is the teacher. A catechumen is the one receiving the oral instruction. The catechumen is the student. Catechism is oral instruction. At least that was its original meaning. For over the last few centuries, the catechism has become associated more with a class setting. Books are assigned, notes are taken, grades are given. Historically, this makes sense. In Germany, religious instruction was tied to the grammar schools. This is one of the reasons that confirmation is done at 8th grade. Most children only completed school through the 8th grade. Also, the rise of German pietism led to an older age of confirmation too. German pietism was a movement which focused inward on the self and not outward on the scriptures and sacraments. German pietists believed that any true Christian could point back in his or her life to an inner struggle with sin that culminated in a crisis and ultimately a decision to start a new Christ-centered life. It is after that experience and that decision that one would receive faith and forgiveness. The German pietists focused on the changing, uncertain emotions of the human heart and not on the objective word and the sacraments. Because of this, it's clear why German pietists would want the confirmation older. Before German pietism, the student was rarely older than 12. Under the influence of German pietism, the age shot up to as high as 16. German pietism, at least in our day, has led away from instruction. Instruction is the giving of knowledge or information. Catechesis was designed for those who do not know. They lack knowledge. This seems very simple to us, almost too simple. Of course kids don't know. Of course they need information. Duh. Well, we think it's simple because we've been taught what John Locke said. John Locke believed that men were blank slates, and that slate needed to be filled up with information. However, this isn't entirely right either. This is why people think that more and more education is going to save the human race from all its vices. Locke's theory fails to account for original sin. However, that's not the point of this right now. There's a different educational theory that's been floating around for thousands of years. Plato, no, not the stuff you played with as a kid, came up with it. Plato was a philosopher, a thinker. He thought about how the world worked. And he taught in one of his books, called the Mino, that man doesn't actually learn any new information. He believed that learning consisted of rediscovering that knowledge which is within us. Sounds pretty stupid, right? How could anyone believe that? But take a step back. Look at how many people talk about the Bible today. How many times have you heard, this is what this passage means to me? How many times have you heard, well, I think or I feel when we're talking about a biblical text? There, people are using the Bible in a wrong way. They're not using the Bible to gain more information about what they didn't know before. Instead, these people are using the Bible to bring out their own feelings, their own emotions, or their own memories. This too is wrong. In order to have faith, we need knowledge. You can't trust in something or in someone if you're ignorant of them. And so we need to combine both Plato and Locke's thoughts. You and I do have an innate knowledge of God and his law. Romans 2 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. This innate knowledge needs to be brought out, developed, and sharpened by the law of God. However, Locke is right too. When it comes to the gospel, the good news, we are a blank slate. 
There is nothing in us that teaches us about the love of God in Christ. There is nothing in nature that teaches us about how God loved the world through his Son. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So children cannot know that. Many adults cannot know that. And that's why catechetics has to be oral. Catechetics ought to be spoken. The teacher or catechist should give the true and right answers to the student or to the catechum. Because they are a blank slate when it comes to the gospel, they will not be able to figure it out on their own. They need the right answers written on every neuron. That's why memorizing or learning by heart is so important and necessary. But the oral or spoken instruction is also good because it allows for questions to be asked. There are words in the Bible that we don't use very often in everyday speech. What is justification? What is grace? What is faith? This gives the teacher or catechist the opportunity to see if the student understands the words he or she is learning by heart. This is what we call the grammar stage. We memorize something. If there is a word or a phrase we don't understand, we ask the teacher. This is the first step in learning. What do the words say? Don't jump ahead. Don't jump to where you ask, what does this mean for me? That'll come in time, in later stages. You need to know the objective truth first before you apply it to yourself. Otherwise, you will fall into Plato's false system of remembrance. You will try to find these things in yourself. You only find devils which dwell in your nature. And so I have a few suggestions for you this week. Number one, memorize a Bible passage, psalm verse, or catechism section. Number two, break down the text. Who is doing something? What is being done? Look up any words you don't understand. Three, look at the context. Is this the Old Testament or the New Testament? Who is speaking? What is going on? Where is this taking place? Four, now repeat this verse while you're driving. Speak it out loud while you're walking. Teach it to your kids. Congratulations, you have just completed the grammar stage of catechetics. That'll be more next time. When we talk about false gods, I think uh, the Bible talks about it this way, how we like to make a god in our own image. Mm -hmm. And I think that's at the heart of what, when, when uh, people say, well, this is what it means to me, this is what I think about God, and they're kind of imprinting that upon a text. Um, what you are actually doing is making God in your own image. Real talk. Generally, people think that God has the same opinions that they do. You know, yeah. they, they just take their own opinions and they, they kind of say, okay, I think God would see these people the same way I do. I mean, how many presidential, for example, uh, candidates talk about being religious? Right. Or, or they'll talk about two diametrically opposed opinions from one another, and they'll both claim it's because of their belief in, in Jesus. What are they doing? They're projecting their own philosophies onto God. Whereas catechesis, it kind of confronts it, well, this is who God is. And you're informing others as an instructor, and you are taught to inform yourself of, no, this is what God actually is. This is what God actually does. And, and so that's what faith is, too, is to realize that there is a will greater than your own. There's a will of God that is that is so he's smarter than you, he knows more, he sees history differently than you do. And so you trust in what he says in things like the Ten Commandments. You trust in what he says when he talks about forgiveness and, and life, because he is the creator of life. He knows more than you do. And so part of faith and teaching that faith is not looking into your own heart for truth. It is accepting there's a truth beyond yourself. Uh, just like a parent, right? When a parent instructs the children, uh, they say, well, this is what is true. And a, a child may not like it. They may not understand it. But ultimately, they have to to trust. And there's all sorts of things. As pastors, we know that when people go through a very tough time, they don't understand why things happen the way they do. And as pastors, we would like to say, well, it's because of this and this because of this. But we don't know. And the only place we can really point them of what we do know is the word of God and say, this is what God's word has to say. Now, I know you're sad. I know you're troubled. I know you don't like what happened, but this is what God's word has to say. And so catechesis is repeating those type of questions. It is talking about them, being informed from the word of God, not confirming your own opinions on that. Um, and that's how faith is taught through through catechesis. And, and sometimes, you know, people 
might hear what, what a pastor teaches is, well, I don't necessarily agree with that because it's uncomfortable. You know, um, that's one thing if you got a chance, anyone had a chance to listen to our last episode where Melba talked. She said, uh, um, she said, if you have a pastor who, who gives you God's word, um, they could remember exactly how she worded it, that you need to realize what a blessing you have. God's word is God's word and that is enough. And, uh, and so that is what informs our faith. You know, I can say wholeheartedly that there's lots of things in the Bible, lots of things that I've taught that I personally don't like. By don't like, I mean I struggle. For example, right? When, uh, how often does a pastor, we practice closed communion, how often does a pastor like to say no to someone? Not very often. Right? Not very often at all, because that's not why we became pastors. Right. You know, there's lots of things in the Bible that would be a lot more convenient to us as Christians if it weren't there. And uh, I think we live in a society and culture where, where like you said earlier, where, where uh, it's all inner stuff. And it's all, well, you know, Jesus would say this because of this. Well, actually, we have what Jesus said, and it wasn't that. I, uh, I appreciated how you pointed out the key of defining terms. It came up in our text study when we were talking about submission, uh, but also how important that is in catechesis, because a lot of the language of the Bible is found in the culture, but the words are being used for completely different uh, reasons, and they mean different things. And as Christians, uh, when we read the scriptures, um, looking up those words very that's very important and key uh, for children and for adults mm -hmm. well and that's you know like I think of one that I see a lot um, don't be in church but be the church is one you hear a lot well what are they trying to say I don't know if I've heard that before. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, basically, it's like, oh, you're, you're well, catechizing me. You know, go out and uh, it's a you know basically go out and do good works. Yeah, is, deeds, not creeds, right? Kind of thing is usually how it's you know is what they mean by that. Well, what does that word church actually mean? The Greek word is ekklesia, like the word ecclesial, and it simply means an assembly, those who have been called together, right? So that's that's one thing in just that simple definition of what the church is. You're, you're told what it is. It's an assembly. It's a gathering. It is where we gather together to hear the word of God and receive his gifts, right? Mm -hmm. Well, can you be part of the church if you're not actually in the assembly? I mean, l right. I mean let, let's just be honest, right. right? You know, can you claim to be part of the church if you're not actually doing that? I mean, Hebrews is very clear. In Hebrews, what is it, 10.27, right? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, as mm -hmm. some have done, right? Or, or, or uh... Now, of course, I'm not talking about shut-ins or whatever, right? That's not... These are... I'm talking about the people who claim to be Christian, who claim to believe in God, who claim to be a part of the church, who refuse to go to services. Mm -hmm. That is who I'm talking about. Okay. And I think another thing that reflects that is... is uh, the sign says you exit, uh, you are now entering the mission field. Oh, my gosh. I hate that, too. <laughs> but, you know, and it goes back to if, well, you, if you define the church by what the church, by what the members do, guess what you've done? You've turned it into a law-based legalistic thing rather than the church being not only the place, uh, but it shows the effect of the gospel, right? Because... God has called this assembly together. It is in this assembly that God's word is preached, where forgiveness is given every single day, and that everything in this assembly, in this Christian church, is ordered towards the forgiveness of sins. If you are so focused on sanctification, on doing good works, and don't get me wrong, good, good works are, are they're good, right? We should do them, right? But if you turn the word church, like many of them do, into uh, this uh, legalistic nonsense, well, guess what? You've lost the whole point. You've lost the gospel. Especially if you think about it, it, think about that sign that says, okay, as you're walking out, you are now entering the mission field. Don't you think the mission field should be directed where Jesus has promised to meet us? Right. Where his word is clearly heard, where Jesus actually speaks, where, si where sins are absolved? Mm-hmm. 
and and uh, where the pastor actually preaches the word of God in a way that that what we try to do is that everyone could understand that if someone did not know anything about Jesus, I try to have something in the sermon so that someone could get something about who Christ is. Mm-hmm. And so, so uh, if you want the mission field, then bring them to church. Right. Well, and that also I think gives a false comfort because Jesus says that not everybody in the assembly is actually a Christian. Right. You know that that, that assumes that okay, I'm the person that you. I've got it nailed down now. Right. I'm safe. And right. that's not true. So so yeah, I mean I mean there's lots of those things that uh, I think we hear and we don't think without defining terms, but man, we're getting preachy today. It's well, good. You know, I mean and that's the thing <laughs> is that when we use words wrongly, um, that does have an effect. It does. It has a you know, people will be like, Oh, well you're just nitpicking, blah, 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 blah. No, language is important. Language is super important. That, to go back, what you said is is uh, about about church, church gathering around, assembling together around Christ. Right, right. Uh, it is exactly the kind of things that you've been saying and we've been talking about. Is why people uh, think, kind of desire to be a part of the body of Christ without being a part of the body of Christ. Right. Yeah, you know, we want to be a little fingers and toes spread all over the countryside. Right. It's like a, <laughs> you know. You lost your you lost your hand in an auger or something, and right. the and hand the, is still you know. I'm sorry, you're not like thing from the Adams family. And the part of part of the catechesis aspect that you were talking about, the questions and answers. There's something very important about the repetition of it, because the question and answer system. The more you get that drilled into your head, it affects your belief too. Right. It informs your faith. It teaches you to answer these things and to, the way you would like to word it, is internally digest them. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I hate the... Take to heart? Yeah, take to heart nonsense. (laughs) Man, I prefer the oldest term, mentally masticate. Oh, wow. Right? Because you are what you eat. Yeah. All right, well, that led us into all sorts of discussion. So we look forward to those. Thank you for that, Berg. All right, we should move on because the fire is slowly dying, dying away. down. Yep. And uh, Vicar smells like smoke and insect repellent. That's normal. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> yeah, someday when when you get famous and they make a, a cologne after, you know, cologne Kroonblad. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it could be called Vicar's Desire. Oh. <laughs> what does it smell like? Campfire and bug spray. Hmm. So that brings us to our top uh, 12 list. Peter, play the intro. Enough nonsense. It's time for Bullhagen's Top 12. My, my uh, top 12 list today is something that I, I would say is something that I don't think we talk enough about as Lutherans. Go on. Because uh, uh, we talk about sin. We're good at pointing out sin, mm-hmm. right? And saying, this is wrong, you need to repent, right? Yep. Okay. One thing I don't think we are quite as good at is this, is talking about temptation. How to deal with temptation. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the Bible, isn't that one of the major themes that we see of throughout Scripture? Well, and it's funny that we don't talk about it because, like, there's a whole petition in the Lord's Prayer like, right. Lead us not into Tim. It's something we we pray like every day, right? Right. And uh and and, and we think of what 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 are the uh, if you listed the I guess I'm into lists, like, you know, the top 5 uh ways that Jesus suffered. What's one of the top 5 we point to? Well, when he was when he was tempted. Tempted. And so I do struggle with this sometimes because we're really good at pointing out sin. Mm-hmm. We're really good at, at standing in the pulpit and saying, "Okay, you, you and me, we're all miserable sinners. This is how we failed. But then when it comes to actual temptation, people, I think, can get the impression, well, you know, don't wrestle with it. God will forgive you. And there's... Yeah, it, it's like a, a doctor who's really good at, you know, talking about disease, but like pointing out the specific diseases mm-hmm. or like uh, washing your hands before, you know... Right, you know, for flu season or whatever. You know? Right, or or a, a heart doctor who's really good at heart surgery, and how you get there doesn't matter so much. Prevention, yeah. Right. <laughs> yep. So 
Is this just an observation I've made? I make no. I, I think you're absolutely right. Well, because that's the problem is everybody takes the cop out of. Oh, well, we're all just poor, miserable sinners. Oh yeah. Well, what sins have you committed? Right. This is another thing with catechesis. Right. That part of the thing is is that we should examine ourselves and struggle with sin and, and wrestle struggle. with it. And it's going to be different for every person. Right. Right. And obviously, it flows from the gospel. You know, the fact that we're forgiven. But I think it takes away from the gospel when there is no struggle with temptation. Well, the, the if there's no struggle, then I think, then you should be really afraid because then you should... There's I no mean, repentance. Yeah, then are you really a Christian? Right. Is really the thing. So If you don't feel bad about it, that's when you should really be scared. So that brings us then to my top 12 list is of... Uh, Top 12 things, and I'm thinking of people who who struggle with temptation and maybe have not been taught, how do I, how do I deal with temptation? Because we all have temptations. Yeah. Okay? So, bring us to number 12. Number 12. 12 is easy. You already basically said it. Pray about it. Where do we get this? Well, from the Lord's from Prayer. From the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Right. Because... Prayer, well, one, God answers prayer, right? Yep. Two, prayer does change our own way we think about it, mm -hmm. right? I mean, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, he prays it to remind us he's the one that delivers us from evil. He's the one that gives us our daily bread. He is the one that gives us strength and temptation. So, so simply praying about it when you are in the throes of some sort of a temptation, uh, pray about it because you're, you're – that's part of the struggle. You're... That's what First Corinthians 10 says, right? That, you know, when you're suffering these temptations which are common to man, God will provide a means of escape. Number 11. Realize that the temptations come with a very smart and deliberate plan against you. That's not something we always think about. No. We think, oh, I'm tempted. It's just this me, this personal struggle. And we don't realize that that sin and temptation ultimately have a plan, and that is to destroy your faith in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it comes very uh, in, in very smart, organized, concerted efforts to do that. It's not just oh, I you know I want to do something wrong. Well, if I can, you know, not a big deal. But but to realize that the devil, the way the catechism were, the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature wanted to mislead us and lead us into false belief, shame, or vice. Do you know how they used to take down castle walls before, you know, when gunpowder was just coming up? No. They would dig a huge, they would dig a tunnel under the castle walls, okay? And then they, and then they would try to um, get the walls to collapse, okay? Mm -hmm. um, that's exactly what the devil does, right? It is a long, worming-in process that uh, slowly eats away at the foundations until finally, you know... Um, that's why a lot of these things, these big falls that happen, it's been a lot of little falls in between. Number nine. Uh, don't bear your temptations alone. And uh, actually, as we get later in the list, I'll, I'll probably be say the same kind of thing in more specific ways. Mm -hmm. But, But it's always good if you have a good Christian friend, if you're struggling with certain temptations, to talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. To, and and because that is very helpful, it, it helps you inform. It gives you a chance to listen to a Christian friend who understands and can help watch out for you. Right. It's kind of like the Discovery Channel. What animal is the one that gets picked off by the lions? The one that's by itself. Right. Right. So, so it could be a family member. It could be a friend. You know, I, I would suggest at some point. And when you feel that way, like you want to be alone, that's probably the time that you shouldn't be alone. Number eight. Identify your points of weaknesses and avoid those things. Mm -hmm. um, that goes right along with, uh, you know, lead us not into temptation. Because, you know, if you know what times you're going to be weak, catch those in advance. Or if there's a particular trigger. Not all temptations are going to hit you like others. Also, too, 
make sure like it, it sounds stupid right but like getting enough sleep eating right exercising it it seems stupid but all those things are so important uh because when your body is weak your soul is weak when your soul is weak your body gets weak too yeah um, it all goes together these are things that you know you can and should do i mean look at the children of israel pharaoh worked them so hard by taking away the straw that it said that the text says they could not believe the physical work broke their spirits okay that's why the mind and the body go together and that's why part of uh helping those in need is is also caring for them spiritually for right certain. right when they're in physical when they're yeah suffering from physical maladies number seven think deeply about your love for others and let me explain this one okay mm -hmm. i make toast for my wife when she gets hungry in the evening right mm -hmm. if i was really tired i wouldn't make toast for myself but if my wife asks for toast i'm happy to make it for her and i think that same kind of thing because our sins do hurt others to be mindful of the people that you care about that your sin might hurt I think we have a sometimes a stronger drive to take care of others more than we take care of ourselves, especially when it comes to these things. We care less about what sin does to me sometimes, but if all of a sudden we think of a sin, how it's going to hurt others in our life, that actually might be more impactful mm -hmm. as you're struggling with temptation. Because that's the thing. Sin never just affects you. Number six. Realize that uh, temptations are ultimately theology debates. The biggest examples that people fall back on when they think about temptation, they think of Adam and Eve in the garden and how they were tempted, right? Mm -hmm. What kind of debate were they having? Theology debate. Right. Did God really say, or it becomes accusations against God. You know, this woman, God, that you put here with me, she's the one who did it. God made me this way. If you think of, you could think, you could just grab any commandment. You could say, well, well, by breaking this commandment, in a sense, you are accepting a false theology, speaking poorly of our neighbor, not protecting their reputation. You're making a theological stand about that person's trouble, that person's sins, and your place in them. It's it's a theological debate that you have within yourself. Is God's word good, right, and true, or is my own way good, right, and true? Mm -hmm. And, and it is a theo theological debate. So sometimes people wonder when pastors talk about um, sin, why do you always have to make it about theology? Because thin, sin at its core is false theology. You know, and it's, it's kind of like Seventh Commandment, right? Guess what? Private property is theological. It is. Yeah. Your job is theological. Like how you clock in and clock out. All, policy in the government is theological. Guys, everything is theological. Yeah, it know, really is. I mean, when I worked at a grocery store, uh, one thing that I just couldn't believe, because I worked at a grocery store uh, all throughout college and seminary, one thing that I could I never got over is how much employee theft was going on at a grocery store. Oh, my gosh. I was – everyone would just like, oh, these cookies are damaged. I'm going to go wolf down some cookies. It was just – and what's there's a theology behind that that says that uh, I deserve to have what God hasn't given me, that – it says that God does not provide for me the way I deserve. Yep. You know, there's it's and that all my, theology. And that this property that belongs to my employer belongs to me. Mm -hmm. For whatever way that you justify it. Number four. These false theologies then should be addressed with the word of God. Mm -hmm. And Vicar, how might people get that word of God? Well, they would go to church. Mm -hmm. They would uh, also have a a Bible at home that they read with their family, you know, equipping their children to, you know, fight these temptations as well. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in the day and age that we have with technology, um, every, you know, the whole Bible's at our fingertips. You can get a Bible app for your phone. Because mm -hmm. uh, really the phone is one of the places where temptation comes quite frequently. And speaking of the phone, guess what else is on the phone technologically? Clerical errors. Oh, yeah. We can, you know, we can help you out with your problems, actually, too. Actually, <laughs> well, now that you say that, plug. you know, I was actually kind of thinking about that. this is if you're listening to this, it, it wouldn't be a bad thing to 
to kind of bookmark this so that if you are wrestling with something, should I or shouldn't I? It's a good idea. Mm-hmm. So to listen to just some general biblical ideas on how to, how to wrestle with the temptations that you're facing. And, and to remind you, you know, coming from a pastor, that uh, we understand that temptations are are bad and they're horrible. And we understand what they're trying to do with you. And they cause a lot of internal struggle. But but uh, to know that uh, you're not alone in that and to, to think of how God's word is a strength for you and a comfort for you in the midst of that. One more thing, too, that we haven't mentioned yet. So, Bullhagen, when you're sick, do you go sit in a room with 100 people listening to one doctor? No, I don't. What do you do? Um, I, I'm a weeper. I just curl up in a ball and I weep. <laughs> oh, boy. This was, that didn't go the way that I wanted it to. Right? Usually you go to uh, the doctor, right? And you talk with the doctor one-on-one. Right. Right? Well, your pastor is also available to do that with you. Right? Right. That if you really want an answer to a question, sometimes the best place is not to bring that up in Bible class especially if it's really close to you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the best place to bring it up where you can be very specific and we can't divulge anything is on a one-on-one basis, you know, one-on-one meeting with the pastor, okay? You do it with your doctors, you should do it with your pastor too. And, and does it do you any good when you go to the doctor to say, because I know this happens. I, I talk to enough folks who will say, well, especially if, when they're older and they don't want to have surgery, Right. They'll minimize certain pains that they're having. They won't be completely honest, you know. Mm. You know, when they, when they say, oh, yeah, I have, uh, um, do you drink alcohol? Yes, I have one or two drinks a day, you know, and the doctors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Like, it doesn't help them, right? And it's no wonder people get frustrated in Bible class when they have a very personal question that they're trying to ask, but then they frame it in such a general way. Guess what? If you talk about, anything in a general way, you're going to get a general answer. And that's not going to help. That doesn't make, that doesn't satisfy anybody. Right. Right. If you want a real answer, you know, and yeah, you might be scared. You might, you know, not want to do it. It might be uncomfortable, blah, blah, blah. You know, well, it's not always that much fun going to the doctors either. Reminds me of a a sermon I preached. I think it was either at an installation of a pastor or an ordination um, where the text was uh, Jesus washing his disciples feet. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is a lesson on what pastors do. You get your hands dirty, <laughs> right? You know, you you are there to to uh, to wrestle in a sense with these things, and and it's a change on how you might understand your pastor. You know, usually a lot of people, the last person you want to know is a sinner is your pastor. Guess what? We already all, we know that already by the word of God. So you know, you're not surprising us, right? And that's what we're here for, right? We actually feel something called compassion for you because we know what it's like. And we know what it's like to be tempted. We're not probably, that different. Probably more than you do, actually. Because, yeah, we wrestle with a, a lot of things. We, re- you know, we don't just Behind wrestle collar, with our own. Yeah. yeah, we don't just wrestle with our own sins. We wrestle with other people's sins, too. Yeah. So, you know, it's we probably like... have more ups and downs in a day than anybody else. I mean, really, you know. I've told my wife. I think I had a day as a bio. Well, you seem kind of quiet. I said, eh, I've had a lot of people cry at me today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is fine. Yeah. But, but I mean, it's a roller coaster for us too. And this isn't like. But that's what we're called know, to do. That's what we're here to do. That's right? what we're here. This is not an excuse for, oh, we're not looking for the pity. I mean, we don't want your pity. What we do want you to do is use us. And when people are helped, that makes us actually feel better about it. Number three. Understand that Christ defeated temptations for you. That doesn't mean you don't struggle with them, but but in a sense, you even though you battle, you're battling a war that Christ has won for you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you stop battle battling. You don't still struggle. That's part of being a Christian. But at the same time, you're you're battling a victory that Christ has won. You're battling against sin that Jesus has already paid for. But it doesn't make it a useless thing. It makes it very important because if you love Christ and you understand that His Word is true. You want to do what is best for your neighbor and what is in ways that show love to God. And and realizing that sin and temptation has a plan for you, yes. But the, the demons that harass you are not stronger than Jesus. And that's what the temptations of Jesus shows. He mm-hmm. battled with the darkest of demons, the devil himself, in ways that 
we don't understand. And, and I think, you know, uh, one of my stupid phrases that I have is this, is I say, um, temptations are by nature tempting. Mm-hmm. And when Jesus was in the wilderness, we'd say, oh, yeah, he's God, you know. But they were real temptations. Right. And he defeated them. And uh, I guess that, that that understanding also should awaken in you, the listener, to realize that temptations are tempting. That's the, the very nature of them. And yours might be different than someone else. And we sometimes can, can be, uh, you know, ashamed of someone else's temptations as though because they're not yours. But you have your temptations, and they are very tempting to you and they come with their own theology Mm -hmm. but christ has won that war for you even though you battle and that should give you hope that it's not a hopeless battle it's not a battle that has no meaning or purpose it's it's a war that has been won by christ on the cross for you number two remember your baptism Mm -hmm. and that's very catechetical but baptism a lot of people don't necessarily equate baptism with temptation but it does, because we learn in the Catechism that by, uh, and also from Romans chapter 6, mm-hmm. the old Adam in us, should by daily contrition and repentance, be drowned and die with all sin and evil desires. So say that last part. Sin and evil desires. Say that one more time. Evil desires. <laughs> evil desires. What is it? Oh, you mean that, that uh, daily contrition repentance and the waters of baptism that wash you clean and kill the old Adam in you actually can change? Your evil desires? What? Mind blown. Mind blown. And number one. Confession and absolution. Particularly private confession and absolution. To know that whatever sins you're struggling with and that you might be tempted to do again in the future, to know that you begin with a clean slate. Mm-hmm. That uh, temptations, you know... You were talking about our consciences and how our consciences can get warped. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. we're born with a conscience, but it needs to be refined. You know, temptation can come in a way, and this is what the, the, when I talked earlier about the plan of te- of temptation that it has a mean, a goal is that that uh, when you do something you're sinful, uh, your own guilt can warp that. You could feel really bad about it the first time, right? Ten 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 times down the road, you don't feel so bad. It's who I am, or this is. This is, I guess, my thing now. Confession absolution kind of wipes that away. You're a new, you're a new child, and you heard from the voice of Christ mm-hmm. that your sins are forgiven. After hearing it, after hearing your struggle, your sins are forgiven. Jesus Christ covered those sins. is freeing, and it also gives you hope in a way of understanding the temptations that you will face. And that can be really hard when you first start out because you dig yourself deep into a hole, you know, with uh, these particular habits, and then these habits don't go away. We're not saying the habits go away or even the desires go away. In fact, they can come back pretty strong, right? Mm-hmm. Because the devil wants you back. Your your evil flesh doesn't like to be denied. And that's the thing. Come back, come back, come back, come back, come back. We're here. That's what we're here to do. So, well, thank you. That was uh, that was fun to do. Well, fun. You know what I mean. I understand. Picking up a trip. It's uh, I think it probably had a little bit more meaning than the top 12, 12 numbers. I, I could mean, be wrong. I think that one was Listener. pretty numerological. So. <laughs> Listeners, if you have an opinion, where can they get a hold of us, Vicar? They can email us. Uh, feedback at clericalairs.org. They can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, or uh, any of those podcast uh, apps that are out there and i don't know is there anything that peter's running right now that we want to mention um top moments right oh yeah favorite moments of clerical errors podcast yeah because we're, we're uh, coming up to our one year anniversary right right and uh we want to have uh what are your some of your top moments so we can highlight those in our uh, our uh, talks and tasties awards right so email us um we really enjoy your questions your comments so and if you know someone and then and, oh, uh, and also please uh put a review put a review on like itunes podbean you know we really appreciate them uh and so that way other people can look at those reviews and you know start listening to the show too yeah um so five, get, the, get the word out you know, you know five I, stars I, would be great right uh if you're not gonna give us five stars 
Um, you could email us about things you'd like to see different, and we can do that. But right. you know, right. But if you you know if you know someone you think might like, talk to them about it. You know, you know, it's a good way. I think it would be a good way for someone who's struggling with certain things. Right. You know, or if you know someone who's thinking about maybe someday being a pastor, and they kind of well, what is it like to what do pastors think about? Well, give them a chance to look behind the collar. Speaking of Victor, what are you thinking about right now? Go. <laughs> right now, go, go, go. You're thinking you're too I, long. Well, I was thinking about Pastor Bull Higgins' top 12 list today. The numbers or the temptation? The content. I see. Yeah. And how that was, I think that's one of my favorite top 12 lists you've done. All right. So what we have next is um, a time for Vicar and I to meet uh, the bishop of the Siberian Lutheran Church. And uh, I had a chance to ask him a few questions. So we'll kind of, I guess we could call this, uh, I guess, a newsy thing, because mm-hmm. since I'm kind of getting into interviews now. Right. But maybe I, I thought maybe we can listen to a portion and then. Uh, you know, you should you should talk in that old 1920s radio voice, you know, because right. that would be awesome. All right. We have. There we go. Finally. Uh, yes. Uh, like that. Uh, in our next story. There we go. We We interviewed the. The Bishop of the Siberian Lutheran Church. <laughs> All right, I can't do that whole show. I can't, I can't do that. Uh, that's All right, amazing. So I figure we could just play a clip and then maybe talk about it. Burr can respond and we can talk about it. All right. I am with Bishop. How do you pronounce your name? Vasyavolod uh, Litkin. I'm a bishop of uh, Siberian Evangelical Lutheran Church. Our church is one of uh, two conservative churches uh, in uh, Russia, in Russian Federation. Um, another church's name is uh, Church of Ingria in Russia. It is our sister church. Uh, so, and, and you like to say it's the it's the biggest Lutheran church in the world, right? Yeah, yes, uh, but of course by the territory uh, where we <laughs> operate, because at the same time our church is, is very, very small. And, and generally, Lutheranism in modern Russia is uh, just a very small minority. It is because of our history uh, during the last uh, century when uh, all Lutheranism in Soviet Union was destroyed by, by communists. We talk a lot about persecution, you know. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy that, you know, has kind of experienced it, especially in the history of their, of their church body. The, where literally... He talks in his presentation, he talked literally about the the story of the last Lutheran pastor being killed. Yeah. And you know, you think, think about I mean, that. It would be an awesome action movie if it wasn't so sad. And, mm-hmm. and at one point, uh, before all this happened, the Lutherans were the second largest denomination, denomination in all of, of Russia. Right. Lutheran churches everywhere. And now he's in a position where we joke about it being the the largest Lutheran church. How many time zones? Like I think he said, four thousand miles from one end to the other. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, do you know the numbers for how how big or small they are in terms of numbers? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's a few. I mean, we're talking maybe a couple thousand people, right? If that. And and they don't have you know the parishioners don't have money. Right. And it's. You know, they, they could use a lot of help. If you think about all the ways we spend money. Right. And so that's I think that's something for us to, to think about because this is what happens when evil governments persecute the gospel. Um, they destroyed their churches. They killed their pastors. They moved all these people out to gulags. He was talking about 20 million people being killed. Right. And uh, there's a, there was actually a cemetery that he pointed out. Do you remember the cemetery? which was uh, built over a place where a lot of Lutherans were killed. Mm-hmm. And they went back and they built a cemetery in honor of those, those Christians. Mm-hmm. You have a wonderful seminary in Novosibirsk. Would you like to say something about that? Yes, of course. Uh, we have a, a very good seminary that is, let's say, great seminary or the best seminary in the former Soviet Union territory. Uh, Our seminary was organized with uh, a help from uh, Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne and uh, the first professors who came to teach our students, uh, we also uh, had from the seminary in Fort Wayne. Uh, 
Uh, right now we have our own faculty and uh, our own professors uh, who are teaching our students. What's interesting with that, I think, is that, uh, you know, didn't a whole bunch, I mean, when you were a student at Fort Wayne, wasn't there a huge contingent of Russians who came over? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And these were these guys. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. That came over and, I mean, they left their homeland, came to the United States to study in English because we don't. We're not good at foreign languages. Uh, yeah. Americans aren't very good at foreign languages. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they studied and then they went back, um, you know, in order to build the church in their own homeland, um, which is, you know, thanks be to God. And and uh, I like the approach when you're a, a small Lutheran church in a, in a big geographical area. You know, what's the most important that they're showing that they need? They need good pastors. Right. If you had some advice to, to Lutherans in America, what would it be from based on your experience? Well, um, uh, I think uh, first you should understand uh, how much you have. So you have uh, freedom and you have a lot of possibilities. Uh, uh, you have uh, everything you need so you can uh, be thankful to God and uh, you can uh, help others who do not have so much as, as you have. I just want to stop there. Mm -hmm. Just that's that's good, good commentary. So listening to someone who, who I think I remember one time they were asking for money for pastors, and they're just saying something like, "Well, a pastor over there makes like two hundred dollars a month." Right. You know, for some folks, that's what they go out and eat with. Right. Every month. You know. Right. And, and 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 there's two things about that. One is he says, realize what you guys have. You have freedom. Right. And, and for most things, when we complain about our resources, it's not like anything like there, you know? No, no. You know, we, we might say, well, we have a roof that leaks once in a while or our carpet needs to be replaced or things like that. And they're like, well, we don't have a church building. Right. I, and I Our think, pastor doesn't have a car. Yeah, we pay him in potatoes. Right. You know, and I think that's one of our biggest temptations, getting back to your deal. We have so much that we are afraid of losing it <laughs> and... That I think that that really stunts our proclamation of the gospel sometimes, and and also then to remember people like that, where just think how how far your money can go in helping them. Right. So, you know, there's churches out there who say, well, we you know we can't afford a pastor, and I can understand that. You know, imagine if a pastor costs two hundred bucks a month. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, if someone wanted to to support you. How, how can they do that? Uh, the best and easiest way to support us is uh, to do that uh, through the Siberian Lutheran Mission Society. This is uh, the organization here in America to help the Lutherans in Siberia. And, and what is, what, what, do you have any immediate needs, like some things that are the most important that you're working towards? Well, uh, uh, we are uh, we are a very poor church. Uh, we cannot pay uh, salaries to majority of our clergymen, and they all have a, a secondary job. They need to find uh, their work, and uh, it is more or less good, let's say. But of course, it. Uh, needs a lot of uh, power and need of a lot of time because when priest uh, combines two works uh, together, it is it is very difficult. Uh, but the problem is that, for example, when we need to uh, pay for medical uh, help to our priests, uh, then we just uh, often do not know what to do. Right. And uh, so we need to be supported from outside. All right, so I mean that kind of shows the state of the church there. I mean most of the peop most of the pastors don't, you know, they they don't get paid by the church. Right. You know they have secondary jobs. Um, a lot of them can't pay for medical bills, and so um, if God so moves you to do that, you should look up um, the Lutheran Siberian Mission Society. Go to Google and type in the Lutheran uh, or the Siberian Lutheran Mission Society. We'll probably post a. a a thing to our Facebook page, so that way mm -hmm. um, you guys can find it even even easier. If you know, so yes. And uh, do you know all of that is uh, not uh, tax deductible 
that you give to the Mission Society, and it all goes uh, to the pastors there, right? Yeah, it's a group that has very little overhead. Yeah, and all the overhead is paid for by other people, right? Right. So if you donate, 100% of your donations go to these pastors and the like. Mm -hmm. So. All right. Well, I think that's a a good way to to end this show. So Awesome. um, I'm Bullhagen. And I'm Berg. I'm Vicar. And uh, may your mineral water be smooth. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Questions, thoughts, concerns? You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast, on Twitter at clericalheirsp for podcast, or email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. Thanks for listening to Clerical Heirs. See you next time.